I think the history of women's cricket is only now starting to be told. Girls' cricket has hitherto been regarded as a joke by most people. Non going through the six boxes of stuff which had been sitting in storage for years, the original 1934-35 scorebook was in amongst all these records. We couldn't always guarantee sponsorship because we were never in the limelight. I think it's the biggest challenge of their lives. They see England as the cricketing nation because cricket began there. When Elise Perry hit the ball over the boundary, I just went, oh my goodness. No body line, no barracking, just good cricket. Hello and welcome to episode five of The Maiden Summer, the hidden story of a famous sporting contest and the growth of Australian women's cricket. I'm Nick Richardson and in this episode we hear about some of the obstacles that bedeviled women's cricket in the 1970s and the dynamic group of administrators who found ways to ensure the game prospered. We find out what became of one of the pioneers who featured in those first two test series and track her enduring influence on the next generation of cricketers. And we listened to what it was like to be there in those moments when some of the walls that had stalled the progress of women's cricket started to crack and fall. But first, let's try to get a picture of what was going on in Australian women's cricket in the 1960s when what should have been a blossoming of the game was instead a period of paralysis, driven by a lack of resources, that actually threatened the game's viability. Well, I really think it was in the doldrums. There was a very conservative air about all women's sport at the time. Um, I came into it and went to probably my first meeting in the New South Wales Women's Cricket Association in 1963, and um, I was amazed that they were so glad that there was no tour coming from South Africa because of the apartheid policy, but their reasoning for that was that they had no finance. So I think there were not many teams. They relied on volunteers. We umpired our own games, scored our own games, etc. And it just made for a real feeling of it being in the doldrums. That's Anne Mitchell, one of the most committed advocates anywhere for women's cricket. Her impact has stretched across almost five decades. She's played the game, managed Australian teams and was president of the International Women's Cricket Council. But what she discerned way back in 1963 stayed around Australian cricket for many years. Anne's early experience, though, fires her up she can see the game's potential to build on its strong history. There were some young people coming into it, like myself getting started and seeing that attitude at that meeting that day made me think, we can do better than this. And as new young people came through, things did start to shift, but it still took a while for them to get into the administration and so on. There weren't things like the coaching clinics that came in later with Kanga Cricket and included young girls. There wasn't anything like that. Some of the private schools had the game going, but other than that, there was very little activity at the underage level. There's an interesting similarity, though, between the stories of Australia's next generation of cricketers and those of the previous generation. It's still about games in the street, usually against neighbourhood boys. There's little formal coaching, especially outside the cities, and players from the regions often have to travel long distances to play. Anne Gordon, who becomes Australian captain in the 1970s, remembers her formative cricket experiences in Victoria's La Trobe Valley. Unfortunately, there are only two girls in our our family. So my sister and I would have to walk the plank every time we walked outside our front gate. 
We were two girls in a street full of boys and they used to always use our front gate for the wicket for playing cricket. Anne encounters a game at school called Vigoro, originally a form of cricket played with tennis rackets. It was developed in England and is popular with girls and women in some Australian states. Vigoro never quite rivals cricket for those who are serious about the summer game, but it's another option, another distraction, another reason for young girls and women not to play cricket. And Anne's also a fine athlete, and for a while she turns her back on cricket to tap into the inspiration of the 1956 Melbourne Olympics and those great Australian female sprinters, Betty Cuthbert, Marlene Matthews, Shirley Strickland, among others. Some of Anne's schoolgirl sprint records are still held in her name until the early part of this century. When Anne does play cricket, she leaves Maui in the Latrobe Valley on a Friday night after school to stay in Melbourne for Saturday's game. It means a tricky rendezvous with an older teammate to ensure she gets to the match. So on the way from Cheltenham, I'd have to get into a certain carriage, hang out the window at Bentley. She would meet me on the station, get in, and off we would go to cricket. And of course, we had to go fully dressed because in those days, we were not favoured very much in the way of having facilities for changing or, or what in those days. It was all on public grounds, our matches. Anne has no role model to inspire her and no coach to help her refine her left-arm fast bowling. I had heard about Nell McClarty, of course, and when I was young, I was at a match and uh, she did come up to me and have a talk. And she said to me that, well, she did coach a few of the girls and they all got together after their matches on the Saturday. They went somewhere on a Sunday morning. I think it was always close to Nell's home. Of course, she she couldn't travel that far. No. I couldn't always do it because being at Cheltenham, it was on Sunday, Sunday transport in those days was not as frequent as it is today. And I didn't drive a car, I was only young. So um, I think I went to one or two, but the problem was by the time I left Cheltenham to get over to the other side of town, um, it was rather problematical. Nell McClarty, one of the elite members of Australia's first test team and its first touring team, has been forced into retirement because of a debilitating back injury. I didn't know what was wrong with me and I was always that sort of person, well, tomorrow I'll be all right. And it went on for that many tomorrows. <laughs> that was many, many years before I realised it wasn't going to be a tomorrow. The alternative to playing is coaching, and Nell takes it on with a trademark mixture of self-doubt and rigorous preparation. I don't really know much about what other coaches did, but I really decided I'm going to do it, I'll try and do it properly. And I read and I watched. didn't matter who was playing, I'd go and watch them play. And I got this all into my mind and then I sorted it all out, what I thought was what I would want to coach. And that's the way I coached. And then I didn't know if I was on the right track, but there was a last known uh, Jeannie Carroll and her father was a good coach. He coached Miller and Hassett and a lot of those uh, Australian players. And one day, unbeknownst to me, he came down and watched me coach And he told his daughter that I was on the right track. So that gave me a bit of confidence. She coaches test legend Betty Wilson and a range of Victorians, many of whom become Australian players. 
But Nell finds herself, not for the first time, as something of a rarity. For the women coming through the game in the 1960s, not wildly different to those of Nell's own formative years, there aren't any coaches. Some of her Test match colleagues have stayed in cricket administration, Margaret Peden for one, but such voluntary executive roles require energy and time. Not everyone has both. Other former Test players, including Molly Flaherty, take up golf. And there's another element complicating the picture. Divided loyalties. Especially for many of the natural sportswomen who share a passion for cricket and other sports, but particularly softball, in the summer. When Anne Gordon returns to cricket after her sprinting sabbatical, she realises that softball is actually having a practical impact on her club's premiership ambitions. Two of her outstanding cricketing clubmates, Gladys Phillips and Eleanor McKenzie, who also happens to be Australian all-rounder Keith Miller's niece, are also extremely talented softballers. Both will go on to captain Australia's softball team. Because they had softball commitments and our finals of the cricket coincided with the softball grand finals, it meant that the softball cricketers, Gladdy and and Eleanor, would be taken away when South Hawthorne was about to make the finals of the cricket. And with their contribution gone, it meant that South Hawthorne used to get slaughtered every time they never got past the first final, I don't think. And I think they wanted to do rebuilding because Gladdy and Eleanor said that they had tours coming up in softball and would take them away from cricket more. So that was when the Grants decided it was time to rebuild. But rebuilding a club can be difficult, especially if there aren't young players ready and available. Anne's career progresses from those early moments where she's overawed at her first state game in 1962, the age of 21, to her test debut against England in 1968-69, when she joins Betty Wilson as the only Australian women's cricketer to take 10 wickets in a match. By the end of that series, Anne's left-arm pace has accounted for 16 English wickets at just over 16 runs each. It's a platform to build a career on. Let's pause there for a moment. We're now entering a strange twilight time when performances such as Anne's generate little interest, either from a crowd or the media. It's almost as if women's cricket has slipped from view, no longer part of women's sport, and it seems to have lost any connection to men's cricket. There is only one time during the year, in December and January, when cricketers contest themselves against the best in the country at the annual Interstate Carnival. It's run by volunteers and moves to a different state each year. So that poses a financial burden for each host state, and it's a burden that not every state can afford. Karen Price, an all-rounder from New South Wales, starts her cricket career with the Mirabuka Club. What she finds when she talks to others about cricket is the equivalent of the blank stare. You know, when I first started playing, which was, you know, the early 70s, no one knew about women's cricket. You know, you'd say, what do you do? Oh, I play women's cricket. Oh, women's cricket? No one plays women's cricket. What's women's cricket? You know, and that's the sort of things you'd get. I went to an all-girls school and I was the only girl in the whole school who played cricket. Karen's role models are the women she plays with because there aren't any others. The national stage is there, but too few people are on it and even fewer people are paying attention to it. But all that's about to change. 
England's captain in Australia for the 1968-69 tour is Rachel Hayhoe Flint. Now, if there's one figure from the era who manages to modernise the women's game, it's Rachel. She's a gifted all-round sports person and starts her working life as a PE teacher. But she becomes a journalist, which of course is the ideal platform to highlight and push her priorities to transform the British cricket establishment. She and millionaire Jack Haywood share a similar background. They're both from Wolverhampton in the British Midlands and Jack has donated thousands of pounds from his property development and business interests to support women's cricket. He's excited by the standard of the women's game and suggests to Rachel over a glass of sherry in 1971 that perhaps there should be a Women's World Cup. He's picked the right woman for the job. Rachel has the drive, energy and contacts to make it feasible and Jack stumps up £40,000 to make sure of it. It means that in 1973, women's cricket will stage the first World Cup, 60 overs each side, and it's two years before the men will do the same thing. Perhaps it's fitting that the final of that first World Cup is between England and Australia. Anne Gordon is playing for Australia. The preliminary rounds go well, but then Australia runs into some bad weather and maybe some bad luck. It's not the outcome the Aussies are after. We had trouble with this Duckworth Lewis business. Mm. That was the first time we ever heard of what that was all about. And it affected us in such a way that we were leading the World Cup series with one game to go. And we were down in Wales. <laughs> wet and wonderful Wales. <laughs> of course, we got caught on a wet wicket, which meant the umpires had to make a decision England were playing, I think, someone else, Chester or somewhere up in the Midlands, anyhow. We were sitting in the bar, not drinking. It was where the only television set. And here we were watching England playing on a beautiful sunshine, dry game. And we couldn't get to play because the umpires had deemed the wicket was not fit enough to play on. England won their match. We got nil points or something, so we ended up, I think, 10 matches each, so we had to play the final up at Edgbaston, which we didn't come out very well on because <laughs> it, uh, it was a long tour. But in one way, there's no doubting the impact that the Women's World Cup has on global cricket. It brings together seven teams, including an international 11 and a young England team. Anne Mitchell remembers the impact. That stimulated a lot of interest and you look at the countries that played like India and the West Indies separately like Jamaica and Barbados and those played separately or Trinidad and Tobago I think it was and that led a lot of people to thinking why don't uh, the West Indies combine like the men and be a stronger force that sort of thing. India was just starting the, the women's cricket in their country and of course they love cricket. So that spurred them on. Cricket historian Raph Nicholson sees not only inaugural World Cup's benefits, but also what it didn't achieve. It is perhaps a little bit of an aberration because it doesn't suddenly mean that there's all this money flowing into women's cricket as a sport. And it doesn't suddenly mean that everyone's going, oh, women's cricket is is leading the way um, in every sense. 
On the other hand, the World Cup, we still have a Women's World Cup, a 50 over Women's World Cup. And that 1973 event kind of laid the foundations for that. Um, and the the 50 over World Cup, I think, is still viewed as the kind of pinnacle event for women's cricket. So if that 1973 event hadn't taken place, then the history of women's cricket might well look very different. There's one consequence of the World Cup that perhaps only the most optimistic could have predicted. Raf Nicholson points out the World Cup's success convinces the MCC that there may be some value in women playing a match at Lords. It will only take three years to happen. In 1976, Anne Gordon is made captain for Australia's first tour of the West Indies. The itinerary is two tests plus a game against Jamaica. There has only been two tests in the decade so far, both against New Zealand. So it's not surprising that Anne has a young team with her in the Caribbean. Both tests are drawn, played on lifeless wickets. And then Anne and the team head for England for three tests, 17 tour games, and three one days. And there's a surprise waiting for the Aussies when they touch down at Heathrow. We had just left Jamaica and we landed at Heathrow and all of a sudden there were press on the tarmac and whatever and as we walked out there were bulbs flashing and whatever and we didn't quite know. We thought, oh, this is film star. (laughs) Welcome on the tarmac, you know. And uh, then we saw a few of the WCA officials there and they come up and said, look, we're sorry about this, but um, we were going to be playing at Lords, and that didn't even sink in on us, I must say, because it was an all-night flight from Jamaica. So this was about 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning. And they said, we've got Lords. And they were so pleased. And I looked at Lorna and Lorna, we raised our eyebrows. So we said, well, how did it come about? And of course, they explained Middlesex for the first time ever hadn't made the finals. And of course, Lords was going begging. On the face of it, it feels like the establishment wall has cracked and is about to fall. Public pressure and newspaper commentary guarantee that that first women's international match ever to be held at Lords will happen that summer. There's one other element that takes Anne by surprise. The series is sponsored by an English dairy food company and the Australians have obligations to their sponsors, including days off given to supporting and promoting their products. It's the Australian team's first exposure to sponsorship. It adds another layer of demand to an already hectic schedule. And there's more challenges to come when the women finally arrive at Lords. The Australians have the misfortune of losing their main strike bowler, Rayleigh Thompson, with a broken hand before the Lords match. Karen Price takes her place for her international debut. It's not just the distinctive nature of the ground with its infamous slope that causes the Australians a few issues. There are prying photos of the Australians getting changed in the dressing rooms that are published in some Fleet Street tabloids. Some Lord's stewards leave a bunch of roses to acknowledge the women's presence in what has been a pure male domain for generations. But there are some things that will take more than that to change. The officials at Lord's were great with us and they were honoured to have us and, you know, and they made you feel at home. But some of the stewards there were old, old hat. And, you know, you don't walk through the long room. They only had one toilet there, which was naturally 
a male toilet. Um, that was for the two teams, so that mm. was a bit difficult. But, I mean, it's not their fault because it was a last-minute arrangement. We were up on the second floor, which meant when a wicket fell, you have two minutes to get to the wicket to, to walk in. And, of course, we'd have to have someone sitting a bit further away so they could quickly get down through. Well, I didn't know where I was going. They never showed us how to get to the ground from the viewing room and walking down the dressing room and onto the ground. So I just went through the long room and, of course, I think there were a few glances of them, some of them, but no, <laughs> because, you know, it's their haven, isn't it, the male haven yes. there. And, of course, I didn't realise, concentrating on what I was going to do when I got out to bat, I wasn't. It might look like the match is pointing to a change in the status quo, but there are reminders everywhere of just how far those at Lords need to go to consolidate it. I think afterwards we, we thought, oh, well, <laughs> that's a, a barrier broken. But no, we, we, we never thought that. I think we were a bit overawed by it all because when we went into, they showed us the dressing room and they said, this is the Australian, always the Australian dressing room. We said, that's right, that's okay. And they said, now, uh, we've put Hessian over the urinals um, and uh, that's a, now there's a box. Well, we weren't thinking what the box were. We just thought it was a wooden box. There's a box hanging over one of the edges of the urinal, and that was was a good Evans or Trevor Bailey's one of them. It's their box, and it's left there as a memento. He left it there, so don't touch it or remove it. The match, the second in a series of three one days, is won by England by the comfortable margin of eight wickets, and England takes the series 2-1. For all the fuss about the Lords match, though, its long-term impact on breaking down the barriers between women and men's cricket is questionable, as Raf Nicholson suggests. No, it didn't really change anything. I think that the first match at Lords has a real symbolic importance. Lords is this incredibly historic ground. It's still known as the home of cricket, and therefore for women to be playing there um, on the main pitch is actually an exciting step kind of symbolically. And for certainly for many of the English players who played there, partly because they won the match, they do have really happy memories and, and they feel that it was a really significant event in their lives to get to play on the main ground at Lords. So um, interviewing people like Chris Watmore and Enid Bakewell, who both hit half centuries, that's probably one of the highlights of their kind of cricketing careers. So it's important for the players who get to play there. And there is a symbolic importance, I think, in kind of breaking that, almost that kind of glass ceiling in a way. But the problem is that it's very much a one-off. The test series between England and Australia is three draws. Anne Gordon's captaincy record stands at five tests and five draws. But she leaves England believing that things have changed. What's occurred during the course of the tour gives us some cause for optimism for women's cricket. When she arrives home, she soon changes her mind. It doesn't take her long to realise that not much has changed at all. It's a time when women's equality has never been more discussed. There's new debates, protests and advocacy around the globe about equity, power, freedom and fairness. Sport's rarely part of the discussion. It's often seen as being a masculine construct that has little relevance to the bigger debate. That means the women who play sport, and that means women's cricketers, are not part of that discussion. 
Yet as we've seen, women in cricket are all too familiar with the institutions and barriers that are the targets of the broader movement. And as Raf Nicholson persuasively argues, if women's cricket didn't overtly claim to be advancing the feminist cause, they were certainly doing so in many other ways. My argument is that despite the fact that if you go and ask any of these English women cricketers, oh, are you a feminist? And they would say, no, or no, I didn't really have any involvement in the women's liberation movement or second wave feminism. That actually their activities are feminist in the sense that they are trying to advance freedoms for women. And they are, they do really very often end up having to fight really terrible misogyny because they're basically up against this view consistently that oh, women cricketers aren't very good. Should women really be playing cricket at all? Um, women should be really, when they get married and have children, they should be focusing on that. They shouldn't be off gallivanting around the world playing cricket. Um, and so just purely through continuing to play, um, and in many cases, continuing to play even when they're married and they have young children, that's actually a very significant thing to do um, in that kind of social climate of your primary responsibility should be for your husband and family. They're, they're totally rejecting that. And two years after Anne Gordon's trip to London, there's a sense at least that the on-field fortunes of the Australians are changing. Anne Mitchell feels something is moving when the Australians win their first World Cup title in India in 1978. She manages the team in what is a scaled-down version of that first World Cup, this time only Australia, New Zealand, England and India. And there's only six 50-over side games. The final comes down once again to Australia against England and the Aussies win easily by eight wickets. That too is really a useful marker for the future, as Anne sees it. When we won the World Cup in 1978 in India, again, we showed that the mother country could be beaten. England had sort of been supreme up to that time. I think Australians got a sense, oh, we can do this, and therefore we set upon a path for the next decade And the success of our team was tremendous by the 80s. We had the whole 80s decade. I think we lost one series one day or two New Zealand. Once you got success and did get some press covering and so on and people beginning to hear some names, people still didn't know who the Australian women's cricket captain was, but things were starting to improve. That success can't be underestimated. It's clearly bound up in the Australia-England rivalry. But in some ways, it's the one element of the women's international game that's guaranteed to generate some publicity and broader interests. But the problem is, it's not generating enough interest, especially at a grassroots level. More work needs to be done to nourish the game, especially in the suburbs and the regions. Let's think about another game now. Let's think about golf. One of golf's attractions is in some ways, like cricket, the opportunity for a chat spread over several hours, spent in the great outdoors with convivial company. Bob Parrish is a stalwart of the Australian Cricket Board, two-time chairman, but also an enthusiastic golfer. So too is the president of the Australian Women's Cricket Council, Sylvia Farham. Sylvia's represented Australia at hockey, she's played club cricket, she loves her golf, and is a delegate to the International Women's Cricket Council. Women's Cricket and Sylvia Farham are joined at the hip, and Bob Parrish and Sylvia Farham play golf together, and one conversation leads to another, and then Bob Parrish talks to a fellow he knows from years earlier, Ray Sneddon. Ray runs a sports marketing company. He's been an accomplished club cricketer for the Melbourne Cricket Club, 
and he and Bob Parrish are talking about Bob's chat with Sylvia. It's 1983. Ray takes up the story. And Bob told me that a friend of his at golf, Sylvia Farham, who happened to be the president of the Australian Women's Cricket Council, was looking for somebody who could help them get sponsorship and media, et cetera, et cetera. He said, would you or your company be interested in um, putting this together? And he was really sort of pushing me to, to do it for the sake of cricket. So I said, all right, we'll, we'll do it if we get appointed, and we were appointed. Ray gets paid through an Australian Sports Commission grant of $10,000. He isn't supposed to work full-time, but he will and he stays for 10 years. It's a sobering introduction for Ray. In reality, it's remarkable what women's cricket has been able to achieve. I didn't realise in those days that the national organisation was um, run out of a house with a laminex table, no media coverage, no sponsorship, no nothing. It's a fair indication of just how much of a struggle it is to run women's cricket. The volunteer team of professional and passionate women has kept the game ticking over for years, It needs an injection of something else, ideally sponsorship funds, but also to get some oversight onto the state of the game itself. The challenge of running interstate carnivals and international tours is debilitating. It's only getting harder, and the coffers are not getting any larger. So part of Ray's task is making sure the Australian Cricket Board is aware of what women's cricket is doing. That's not an easy job either. It was a men's club back in those days, of course. Mm. It was probably split 50-50. I had some very good supporters. Uh, one of the delegates on the board of the ACB from Queensland, New South Wales, and, of course, Bob Parrish was, I can't remember whether he was still chairman of the cricket board then or just a past, might have been a, just a recently past chairman and was very powerful person on the board. His assistant, the vice president, was a person that I knew very well from my uh, school days and uh, and cricket days, and um, he was he was hard to get over the line when it came to women playing cricket. In time, the board will help women's cricket with financial support and venue support to play on better grounds and with better pitches. The more pressing issue is actually working out how strong are the game's roots? It was really a numbers game. I looked at the number of participants and they were very low. To go to a sponsor and say, you know, we've got nationally whatever it was, I can't remember the exact number, but might have only been 3,000 or so um, participants in the sport, we, we had to increase that. And I kept saying to all the states at the national meetings that we really need to double, double, double every year and get to a, a sizable figure. And that meant going back into the schools, the girls' schools in Victoria, for example, uh, you know, MLC, PLC, those sort of establishment private schools did run women's cricket in, in their sporting programs. So going back to them to, to help them to develop their base and uh, so it wasn't just a national job, it was really going back to virtually, you know, the grassroots level and getting state by state to realise that we just need to increase the, the base and in, in doing so uh, that will help me go to the media and talk to them about women's cricket has doubled its participant level. As a result, we're out seeking sponsorship And as a result of getting sponsorship and our first major non-cricket organisation was Shell. 
So Shell and the Australian Women's Cricket Council come together in a moment of serendipity on several counts. Ray is making a number of presentations around the country. During one of them, a Shell representative approaches him and asks Ray to come and see them. The second important element is timing. Timing around what's going on in a broader social and economic context. You've got to remember in those days, the 70s, there was a, quite a change in gender uh, equality in terms of businesses. We're going through a period where governments were asking questions uh, of boards as to how many females were sitting on their board, how many senior management uh, people there were. And I think that had quite an influence in terms of particularly sponsorship. But in terms of awareness of the women's, uh, I'll call them events, whether they be sport or community activities or whatever, I think uh, those companies started to take more interest because there was a bit of a push from um, the governments, both federal and state. And I think that had quite an influence, particularly in the sponsorship. Mm. I know Shell mentioned to me about a year or so after, your timing couldn't have been better to come and talk to us because we were just going through internally the discussion about uh, female management and uh, board members. In the midst of this, the Australian team returns to England for another test series. When Ray comes on board, he reckons the English game is far ahead of Australia. But a lot can happen in four years. Anne Mitchell manages the team and Lynn Larson, a leg-spinning all-rounder from Lismore, is captain. Lynn's a tennis player in her early years, but there's no stopping her once she becomes enamoured of cricket. Like many cricketers around the globe, she admires English legend Rachel Hayhoe Flint. But there are limits to that admiration, especially if it's about when to declare in an Australia-England test match. I always looked up at Rachel Hayhoe Flint and it was such an honour for me to meet her. But in that test at Worcester, um, she was in the, you know, in the media saying, oh, she should have declared overnight, she should have done this or that. And... Um, on that first day, I didn't declare overnight because my theory was we still had a couple of good bats in there and I thought, runs on the board, we've got the chance to get them now, we'll get them now, so that's not something we have to chase in the second innings. And just that batting on the next morning, I think um, Lefty was not out, I can't recall who she was with, but we just got that few extra that meant that the declaration and um, bowling them out, we didn't have to bat the second time. So that sort of gave me a sense of, well... Sorry, Rachel, I didn't do what you would have done, but it worked out well. The Aussies win that first test and the other tests are drawn. There's a rain-affected match at Lords, the first game for women at Lords since that first one in 1976, and this one's televised. And this time, Australia wins. Lynn's at that stage the youngest player to captain an Australian side, and she's quick to realise how far the game's travelled and the critical role administrators play in keeping opportunities alive to ensure the game survives. There have been some peaks and troughs in those, those early days. They had good crowds, they had good media, they had, they had a following, they had some fantastic players, so, you know, showcasing their skills. I mean, you look at Betty Wilson being able to score 100, a hat-trick and take 10 wickets in the one match. But again, they, they had the war, they had all sorts of things. They had, you know, five, six years where they didn't play cricket, so their profile was, you know, they just virtually dropped off the, off the face of the earth, I guess, from that point of view. We were lucky at the time, I guess, while there was no more money in the game because certainly it was still a case of the AWCC having to find funds, find sponsors to actually host tours, 
We were just at a very, very fortunate time. I mean, it's well known, just like our predecessors, we had to pay to play. So we, we had to we'd get a bill at the end of the tour. But I, I think we were just privileged as well to have a great group of administrators at the time. And Mitchell was the driving force in, in cricket at New South Wales and Australian level throughout my time. She had a great team around her. They managed to, to find some funds to bring on an executive director at the time. So he was working behind the scenes, getting some sponsorship from Shell um, and, and other sponsors, just enough to tick things over that competitions could be hosted. And while it was still very much a standalone organisation at the time in the AWCC, I think they did an enormous job that they could continually put competitions there for us. And, of course, we had some players who played the game beautifully and, um, you know, while we, we weren't surrounded and um, by media and, and sponsorship opportunities and so on, I think we still played the game well. We got results, um, which I think is something that in the previous, previous years when it may have been test matches were three days, probably the mindset, weather, only three days, all those things combined to resulting, for example, in tests being in draws where we were, we were lucky with four days, and we had the opportunity to, to get some results. So that always makes it a little bit more appealing that the game and we'll, we'll have some more of those next season because the team was delivering. The Shell sponsorship not only helps deliver junior cricket clinics around the country, but also pays for a couple of staff to join the Australian Women's Cricket Council. And Anne Mitchell is quick to see the impact that has. Relying on volunteers and everything was getting extremely difficult because more women were starting to have to work things had to change a bit. They didn't have as much time to dedicate to the sport. So having a couple of paid officials on the national level meant that we coordinated the states a bit more about their coaching program and development of players. So Australia enters 1988, prepared to celebrate its bicentennial year. One of the feature events will be a Women's Cricket World Cup, with the final to be held at the MCG a week before Christmas. Now, here's an event that will test the Australian Women's Cricket Council and its main sponsor, Shell. The budget is $500,000, and with a month to go before the tournament begins, the AWCC is short by about half. It feels like 1934 all over again. The patron of the Australian Women's Cricket Council is a former politician, Dame Margaret Guilfoyle. Senator Guilfoyle, as she was then, is a pioneer in her own right. The first woman to hold an economic portfolio in Australia and the first woman appointed to Cabinet. She is initially Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser's Social Security Minister before he promotes her to the finance portfolio in 1980. She retires from the Senate in 1987 and is living a busy life in the Melbourne suburb of Kew on the eve of the World Cup. Her contact book, not surprisingly, is full of names of the nation's most influential people. She can pick up the phone and make things happen. She knows the head of Shell, former Olympic athlete Kevin Gosper, and she knows him well enough to make a call. Ray Snedden remembers how that plays out. She was marvellous. Her contacts and networks were unbelievable. She actually got into Kevin Gosper's uh, office within half an hour of chatting to her and her place. I was in a cab going to um, Shell in the city and the cheque was in the hand within, um, this was for the extra $200,000, I think. Uh, that was for the World Cup, uh, but Margaret sorted that out very quickly. With those additional funds from Shell, some more support from the Bicentennial Authority and the Australian Sports Commission, 
The World Cup goes ahead. The ABC televises the final, once again between Australia and England. There are 3,000 people in the vast stadium to see it. It's been six years since the last World Cup, which Australia won in New Zealand. This time, the Australians are chasing England's modest 127. At 2 for 14, there's a whiff of nerves, but Lindsay Reeler and Denise Nets pilot the Australians home without losing another wicket. That makes three World Cups in a row for the Aussies. There's sponsorship, there's on-field success. Surely, there's no doubt women's cricket has arrived. Well, not quite. Not yet. There is one very large domino yet to fall. Next week in the final episode of The Maiden Summer, we plot the course of events that set up Australian women's cricket for a secure future and a period of dominance across all forms of the game. This podcast has been written and presented by Nick Richardson and produced by Chris Plumridge. And remember to subscribe to The Maiden Summer wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Anne Mitchell, Anne Gordon, Lynn Larson, Raf Nicholson, Karen Price and Ray Snedden. For details on sources and resources, please go to nickrichardsonwriter.com.au.